We've been in a series for the past several weeks looking at First uh, Peter chapter, or Second Peter, sorry, chapter one, verses five through seven, in which Peter lays out what we call a virtue list. And we find these throughout the New Testament. Uh, in fact, we really find them throughout the Old Testament, really in the ancient world in general. This is a, a very common practice. Uh, of laying out a list of virtues and things that people ought to be about, the things that we should be striving toward if we are going to strive toward greatness. And this has all been uh, tied in with our series, uh, thinking about the season of Lent as we lead up to Holy Week. And Holy Week begins this next Sunday, Palm Sunday, uh, and runs through the week. It's the week of the Lord's Passion, and so he's in Jerusalem, and he's causing mischief in the temple. Uh, the good, the, the Lord's Supper happens Thursday, the trial Friday, we have or the, the execution of Jesus Friday, um, and then Resurrection Sunday. And so the, the purpose that the church has had for really 2,000 years, as far back as our, as our history um, can go uh, in other sources outside of the Bible, that Christians had taken about the 40 days before that Holy Week, and they began to focus their lives and Ask the question, am I really living according to the teachings of Jesus? Am I really pursuing all that? God? Is my life full of love? Am I, can, is there a concern for my poor brother and sister? Is my passion for worship? And so this is the focus that we have been on. And so we've tried to give you uh, tools and resources and topics that focus on that. Um, we use the image of the night. Some asked me if it was Kylo Ren. It's not. It's just a generic night. Um, and, and, and that was sort of what I said when Paul, you know, he said, he's asked me about the series. He says, well, what images are come to your mind? What do you want to kind of, what do you want to present? And I was like, a knight. You know, like a knight in shining armor. When I was a kid, I loved stories like King Arthur, you know, and his noble man. These, these high tales of, of virtue and nobility and honor and fidelity. And, you know, that sort of transitioned as I read the Bible. And as a kid, you know, when they tell stories about David and tell stories about mighty Samson, you know, all these. And you have these idealized visions of all these heroes. But then you hit puberty, Right? And you begin to read the Bible for yourself. And you realize they didn't teach me about David and Bathsheba in Sunday school. They didn't teach me the end of Samson's story. They, they left Jonah's like, I'm, uh, I'm a spoiled brat last chapter out of the story. Um, you begin to think about what the story of... It's always a bizarre thing to me that we hold up like the Noah story. Like, let me tell you kids a story about the time God killed everything in the world, right? Let's put that on your wall. But it's got animals in it, I guess. I don't know. But you begin to read, and, and you realize very quickly, and I love this about the Bible, so please don't hear this as a criticism. I love that the Bible is honest about what humans are like. Uh, for me, this is living proof of the accuracy of Scripture, that it doesn't whitewash our heroes. As we begin to look at the heroes of the faith, we begin to see that they're so rarely heroic, right? So rarely heroic. And what happens, though, as we, as we enter into that reality and as you grow and you get older and you begin to see how complex life is and how tempting temptations are and how hard it is to live any kind of life of virtue all the time and how no one's really done it very well except for maybe Jesus himself, we begin to take all of those virtues. We begin to take that life of, of nobility and, and honor and chivalry and we begin to relegate it all to the realm of fairy tale. I can't be like that. I can't do that. And what I think happens to us is we begin to be the people that just let life happen to us. 
You know, we, we don't think too hard about training for, I mean, you think about training for marathons, as Paul and some of you guys train for marathons. You run for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles until finally that one day you finally have trained yourself through discipline and eating right and all of that other stuff to run this god-awful 25-mile race, right? In the same way, in the same way, we have to train ourselves day after day after day with consistency and determination in order to have the kind of life that when we get put into that fire, put into that test, we're able to live rightly and righteously before God and men. But if you haven't put that time in beforehand, you're never going to make it when the time of testing comes. And we aren't really the kind of people who are doing that day in and day out. We're just kind of the people that let life happen. And so something happens to me and I respond, either good or evil. Just kind of whatever comes out, comes out. And I think that's really tragic. I think that's really tragic. I think as I look at the world, I have a very dark estimation of the world. Um, I think of all the transitions in my life, the advances in technology and science, and some of you who are older have seen even more of it. So much has happened, you know, and, and we can do things that we couldn't even dream of, things that were called science fiction. People are now doing these crazy things. Are we better, though? Are we kinder? Are we more gentle? Are we more generous? <laughs> are we purer? Listen to this text. I'm going to give you a little bit. I'm going to read beyond it. Um, but I'm going to give you the first bit of it from Titus. Chapter 3, it says this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling and to be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating other people. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out to us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Wow. I hope you caught the flow of that. The flow of that is that we were once the kind of people who were just letting life happen to us, just driven by our passions, just whatever I feel like responding to in this moment, I respond to in this moment, just sort of living life. But God saved us from that darkness. He saved us from those passions, and he, through the Holy Spirit, regenerated and washed us through the grace of Jesus Christ, justified us and saved us, so that we might be a people like this, a people that is destined for greatness, people who are destined for eternal kingdoms, people who are destined for eternal life. That is what you're made for. You're made for virtue. You're made to live extraordinary lives. Lives that look like this, and this doesn't look like absolutely anything I have seen on TV or social media, right? But this is the Christian. This is you. This is the virtue he has called you to be, the kind of people. And I think about, I think about um, our, our catchphrase around here, share Jesus. 
And I, I love it. I still love it. But we've, I, I, I have made a mistake in the way I narrate that. I encourage you often. I say, you know, all right, we're going to go out there and share Jesus. That, that's, not, that's sort of wrong because y'all are always sharing Jesus. If you show up to church, if you wear the name Christian, people see you, they see Jesus. The question isn't, are you sharing Jesus? The question is, what kind of Jesus are you sharing? What are they seeing in your life? Are they seeing this? Are they seeing this? Because this, to me, this to me is a bizarre, if we could capture all of this and dump this into a person, right? That's a weird person, isn't it? I mean, look at, the, look at our, our people today. This is a strange person. You would stand out. You would shine like stars. You speak evilly of no one. You avoid quarreling. You show perfect courtesy toward all people, looking for gentility, looking to be obedient, looking to live peaceful, quiet lives so that you might share the gospel of Jesus Christ in holiness and purity and honesty. My goodness, you could change the world with the people like that seems to me that that's God's desire, his mission for Oakland Drive Christian Church. And every other church, every other person that calls themselves Christian that is worshiping him this morning. And so my message to you has been for the past several weeks to pursue faith, to pursue moral excellence, to pursue knowledge, to pursue self-control, to pursue steadfastness, to pursue godliness, to pursue brotherly and sisterly love, and to pursue the highest of all virtues, the virtue that Jesus Christ demonstrates this coming week upon the cross and then raising from the dead the great virtue of love. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if these are the kind of qualities that are in you, that are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8 there. If these virtues are yours, they do something for you. They make something out of you. They make you effectual and they make you Fruitful, that word effectual there uh, means to be employed in some way. Uh, you are an employee of God. Right? God has designed you, he has filled you, he has redeemed you, he has saved you. And so that you might be equipped, we read in Ephesians chapter 4 and other places, equipped for every kind of good work, for works of righteousness, that your, your deeds might bring glory to God who is in heaven. And as I think of employment, I think of the parable that Jesus told. Remember the parable of the talents? The master comes and he has three servants and he gives one five talents and one two talents and, and one one talent. You all familiar with this? You're kind of falling asleep or sick or something. You, you know what I'm talking about? You've seen this? Okay. Thank you. A vigorous head nod. Thank you very much. Good. Um, and some of you are sitting here today saying, well, you know, I, I'm definitely no five talent person. I'm no five talent Christian. I'm no two talent Christian. I'm a one talent schlub. Like I got very, very little to offer you. Offer God, offer the church, offer anybody. And, and I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm just going to say, you know what, you're right. One talent, low talent schlub. All y'all. Okay? Now, let's do a little math. I know. I know, I can't believe I said that either. Um, one talent is 
approximately, so, so here, you know, we're not exact, but, but pretty close to what we, the ancient world would have been about 130 pounds. A one pound is about 16 ounces, which makes, if my math is correct, and I'm not saying it is, the calculator, I think I put it in right. There are 2,080 ounces and 130 pounds, okay? Gold, currently, um, is $1,320 per ounce, and a talent would have most likely been given, uh, given in gold, would have been you know, gold coins, which means that one talent equals about $2,745,600 in current money. So if you are sitting here today telling me in that story, and, and certainly Jesus is, is encompassing all his people, right, all of his followers in this story, if you are the low-talent schlub here this morning, you're still $2.7 million of talent stored up inside you. You estimate yourself very low, and that's usually very appropriate because I'm, I'm not that great, you're not that great, but God is very great. And the scriptures tell us, and we've read this throughout Second Peter and, and all kinds of verses that we've, that we've looked at throughout the series, we've said again and again, even as we're playing with these virtues, even as every time we look at this virtue of godliness, we say, man, can I be godly in knowledge? Man, I'm not that smart or, or moral excellence. Man, I'm not that excellent. Every time we've seen that, we've seen that God has put his spirit inside you. He's regenerated you. He's washed you. He's empowered you. He's filled you. He's equipped you. He's given you everything. That even the virtues that we keep on saying, hey, guys, do this, do this, do this, even these virtues are emanating from the power and grace of God. Very, very little depends on you. Usually it's just, yes, God, I will follow you. And you all can do that, right? Thank you. Yes, God, I can follow you. And so I just wanted to point that out. That really struck me uh, this week as I was thinking about it, that you all are, are equipped for so much more. In fact, again, that word there, um, ineffectual, keeps you from being ineffectual. It keeps you from being unemployable. You are employable because God has made you to be effective. It also says here in this verse, in verse 8, that you are to be fruitful. That these virtues, if we add these to our lives, if we supplement our faith with all these other great things that God has given to us and made us for, we can be the kind of people who bear fruit. You remember from John chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I abide as I abide in you. Uh, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. That makes sense, right? If there are branches fallen off, it's going to have a very difficult time producing apples or oranges or figs or whatever. Figs, where did that come from? Um, it can't produce anything unless it's attached to the tree. And he says, Unless you abide, abide in me, neither can you. You need a tie yourself to Jesus. And if you tie yourself to Jesus, what do we mean by that? We mean you look at the life of Jesus and you do likewise, right? Again, we talked about this word disciple. And disciple simply means an apprentice. An apprentice is somebody who watches what the teacher does and does it, right? And there's knowledge there. There's head knowledge, of course. There's a bunch of do's and don'ts and you've got all these facts and figures in your mind. But it also means you're producing activity with your hands. Be busy with your hands. Be busy with your feet. You are the hands. You are the feet. You are the ambassadors of Jesus Christ to this world. You need to be out there doing those things. And virtue allows you to be the people that can do it. Again, you're always sharing Jesus. What kind of Jesus are you sharing? If you are full of virtue, you're sharing a Jesus that is winsome. You are sharing a Jesus that is accurate. 
You are sharing a Jesus that people can see and grab a hold of, that you can be the peace and presence of God wherever you are. And I don't care uh, if you're a one-talent schlub or a five-talent awesome person of awesomeness, right? Wherever you are, you can make a huge difference. Think about this. In your lifetime, in your lifetime, if you bring one person to Christ, y'all can do that, right? One person, you share Jesus with one person, they grab hold of that message and they run with it. One person, you just doubled $2.7 million, right? I, I wanna put it this way too. Let me say that we, we are often, um, we're often busy about things that don't matter very much, aren't we? Busy about things that don't matter very much. The political scene is the hot thing right now, right? And everyone is very entertaining this year. Never had a year quite like this one, right? We pour a lot of time, a lot of energy into talking, into thinking, into sharing, into posting, into blogging, and all that stuff, into complaining too, right? Lots of complaining. Let me tell you that whoever becomes president, because they'll probably have one, probably, Let's just pull the light and say, shut it down. We're done. Let's forget it. Uh, assuming there is a president, whoever becomes president means less than one person coming to Jesus. Less. It says the angels rejoice when one person comes to Jesus, one person receives salvation. Angels aren't rejoicing if the right person, assuming there is one out there, the right person gets the right job. Right? Let's put our time, our energy, our life into things that have eternal weight things that matter the most. Peter uh, steps in here real quick to give us a warning. And we need those warnings because we get caught up, right? You need both the, the, the rod and the staff. It says here in verse nine, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind and he has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So, so what good is it if God I mean, does all of these incredible things in your life? When we use this word, I, I, I almost sort of cringe when I hear the word salvation appear in songs or things like that because I feel like sometimes it becomes trite in our minds. It becomes just this thing that God did. I mean, it's incredible. You were dead in your sins. And that corpse, that rotting, decaying person that you were has been resurrected and healed filled with the presence of God so that you might have, as we read in verse three, his divine nature. I mean, it's incredible to say I was saved. I mean, so much. What good is it for God to have done all of that stuff for you? I shouldn't use that word wherever you are. Sorry, I won't use it again. All of those wonderful promises have been imbued to you. And then you just go back to the old way of life. He saved you from all of that sin. You just head right back. Just become the same old person. Um, the scriptures say it's like a dog returning to its vomit. Uh, if you've ever caught your dog eating poop in the backyard, you see it through the window and you scream, no, stop, which is what we did this week. That's the person. It's a visceral image. Like, I don't want that dog back in the house. I locked the screen door. I said, you're not coming in. Stay out there with your poop. Vile beast. Right? You don't want that. And the Bible uses that visceral image. That is exactly what you are. If God has made you holy and you go back to sin. So you're blind. You've forgotten. Um, Second Peter warns us later on in chapter 2 
It says, uh, it would have been better for you to have never known the gospel, never known the way of salvation, never known the way of righteousness, than after knowing the holy commandment, turned back to it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 says that there is, um, if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sins. Jesus already died. You've already been made holy. But if you're going to continue to walk in the ways of sin, what sacrifice is left to save you? You've forgotten the one that was available. You, you, you despised it. You set it aside. In fact, um, uh, uh, chapter 6 says that we expose Jesus again to public disgrace. People look at Jesus because they look at you and they say, this is the kind of people that the cross makes? This is the kind of people that, 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 so what you do is you say, well, the cross is ineffectual. The cross, there is no cure for sin. There is no eternal life. There is no change. There is no power in the cross. And you expose Jesus to derision so that people can blaspheme his holy name because they see you, right? And that's a dangerous position for us to be in. Um, this week, we came downstairs. Was it, I can't remember. You'll have to correct me. She will. I don't even need to say you have to correct me. Um, this week we came downstairs and, and Emery had um, dumped glitter all over her head. I, I don't, I, I, I blame Laura. I blame Laura. Because she left a bottle of glitter next to her. And I, I know that Laura didn't think, I love you baby, but I know, you, I know no one thought that you know, she'll dump it on her, but you know glitter in a five-year-old girl is like, it's like a time bomb, man. Like there's nothing good can come of this. But anyway, we come downstairs and I look at, I, we come downstairs for something else and Emery's down there like watching, I don't know, she's watching Barbie. That's what she's watching, Barbie. And, uh, and I look at her and I'm like, you are, you're shiny. What's happening? We come over and it's just, I swear to you, it's just glitter. Now, I'm, I'm mad. <laughs> right? But there... It, and this is, this is the great thing about kids, is, is they're like lawyers, right? I mean, Daddy, you never said, don't dump glitter on my head. And that's not wrong. It's absolutely true. I, I have never said to her, baby, don't dump glitter on your head. Like, that's, it's a completely accurate statement. But you look at her and you say, why did you dump glitter on her head? And she has this look on her face like, that says, I both know I shouldn't have done that, but I also know you didn't tell me not to, Right? And so there's natural consequences. No glitter is allowed near this child for as long as she lives in my house. Like, there's no glitter. There are natural consequences when somebody does something that's wrong. And there are other consequences as well. There is judgment upon those who sin not knowing what they did is sin. But how much more, those of you who are parents out there, is the child punished when they willingly disobey you? When you said, don't do this, and they did it anyway, right? That's like doom, right? Dun, dun, dun. The, the hammer of God is going to fall upon, right? And so in the same way that we experience with children in our own lives is the same thing that we see within the scriptures, that if you have been given a knowledge, this is why coming to church is dangerous. Y'all are doing dangerous things today because you will be held accountable for what you have heard. God will say, you knew the way. You knew the commandment. You knew the law. You knew that. And I didn't say that you had to do it perfectly. That's why I sent Jesus. But you could have tried but instead, what did you do? You wasted your life. You poured your life down the drain. You spent it on, on all kinds of things that didn't matter. And so Peter, is, he, he's given us all of these promises, all of these wonderful things. He says, look at all that God has done for you. And he says, if you 
if you don't take that path, if you don't seize that gift, you're a blind man. And don't think that judgment isn't going to come upon you just because you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In verse 10, so he comes to this conclusion, then, and then, then he says, therefore... You get that therefore that it kind of transitions into a this is my conclusion of all of the things that we've talked about over the past five or six weeks, however long it's been. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent. And I want to stop at that word because that word diligent is the same Greek word that we had back in verse uh, verse 5 where it says make every effort to supplement. And so both of these words carry the idea of, of diligence, of of, um, of Constantly doing something, constantly uh, pursuing something. But it also carries the meaning of haste. You've heard this good word. You've heard the promises of God. I've given you a whole list of things to do. Now run after it. Go get it. Make haste to seize it. So be diligent, but I want you to read there also. Do it now. Don't wait. Don't think I've got tomorrow. Do it now. Be diligent to what? Confirm your calling an election. And I, I want to pause over that too because I want you to see that with that fearsome warning of verse 9, that's not where Peter wants you to stay. He doesn't want you to stay, oh, woe is me, or oh, I haven't done it perfectly, or oh, you know, I'm, I'm no good, or oh, I'm that one talent schlub, can't manage it at all, right? He doesn't want you to stay there. He says, I want you to be firm in your knowledge of salvation. He says, I want you to have assurance. I want you to add all of these virtues to your life so that you can be sure that you have been both called by God and chosen by God. Isn't that great? That you have been called by God. Jesus says in um, John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. Jesus has called you. Have you honestly <clears throat> and truly heard his voice? We read in First um, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, <clears throat> that God has chosen you, again, that same word, elected you, chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only with word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're uh, charismatic here today, you might want to make something of this stuff. I want you to pause there for a second because the last one is the thing that governs the other two. The last one says, and with full conviction. What is the Holy Spirit going to do when he comes upon you? We read in John chapter uh, 14 and 15 and 16 in various places where Jesus talks about the power of the Spirit. What does the Spirit do when it comes upon you in power? It convicts you. It breaks your heart. It shows you how far from the holiness of God you have fallen. And then it says, now get up there and practice the faith that God has given you. Right? That's the power of the Spirit. That's the power of election. So he wants us to, to affirm that, to, to recognize it, to hasten to add these things so we can have assurance of salvation. We need to do heart and head checking. And we need to do it often. We need to stop and say, am I truly a Christian? Is this real or am I just playing games? Because there are a lot of people out there playing games. And if it's real, how do I know it's real? How do I know it's real? One of the ways I know it's real is I can look back at my life and I can say, I know I haven't done it perfectly, but man, I have been striving for faith. 
I have been striving for virtue. I have been striving for knowledge. I have been striving for self-control. I have been striving for steadfastness. I have been striving for godliness. I have been striving for love. Those things that we read in Titus. I am praying earnestly to God and saying to myself when those bitter and hateful and nasty words come to my tongue, cutting them off. And I'm taking every thought captive for Christ. And this is my obsession. And all the things that the world is chasing after, whether talking about politics, or games, since there's very little difference between the two, or, or money, or sex, or power, or whatever it is that everyone else is running after, you are chasing after Jesus. You are chasing after holiness. Look at your life. And don't, don't sugarcoat it. Don't sugarcoat it. Because you're not going to do anything good in your life by saying, yeah, I'm awesome. Nothing good will come from that. Be honest in your self-assessment. And that's what Peter's trying to do. He's trying to encourage us. He's trying to show us the way and say, are you living that way? And, 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 and if you're not, then get going, right? Make haste. Make haste to supplement. Make haste to add. Make haste to be diligent so that these things can become active in your life so that you can become the people of fruit. You can become the people of power. You can become the people that the world marvels at. The thing that, that Jesus says, you're a city on a hill and you shine like, like the stars in other places, that you're ambassadors for Christ. You know, and all of the things that we can say in the scriptures that warn us and all the negativity, and I, I know that we get portrayed, especially the Old Testament, um, even though you said thy steadfast love endures forever like 50,000 times in your prayer, reading from the, God is an angry, vengeful God, but his steadfast love endures forever, Right? But the picture that we have in the world about Christians and about God is, is one of like hellfire and damnation. And that's a real thing. Hellfire and damnation is a real thing. If you don't belong to Jesus, you don't belong to Jesus, right? And that's a warning that's true and it's a warning that's real and it's a warning that we need to take very serious account of. But that is not the majority of the message. That's the warning. Emery knows she should obey daddy. But our house is not full of Emory, you better obey daddy. Emory, you better obey daddy. It's full of daddy loves you. Daddy's proud of you. And daddy wants to see you become wise and great and wonderful and powerful. And that's what we see in the scriptures, isn't it? There is the warning there. But over and over again, I mean, what, what promises have we seen in this text? His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has granted you all things that you might be these wonderful things that we've talked about. He's called you to glory. He's called you to excellence. He's given you precious, like jewels, like gems, like millions of dollars, millions and millions of pieces of gold. Don't even come close to comparing to the precious and very great promises that God has set before you and he's just said, seize it by faith and live it and live it. So make every effort, he says, to save yourself from all this corruption. Don't get caught up in this stuff, but grab a hold of my great promises. Because if these qualities are in you, if these virtues are your passion and your pursuit, you are effective in spreading the gospel. You are fruitful like a tree that a farmer values so highly because no one bears as great a fruit as you I think the worst thing, and this is honest, honestly, the worst thing that could happen to me, I think, is to stand before God 
and have God, and, and, and not even, this is something maybe that happens as you, you get older and you hear a lot of hellfire brimstone sermons, <laughs> and, and maybe that sort of loses some of its power. For, for to me, uh, that's not nearly as terrifying as God saying, you know what, I gave you so much and you didn't do anything with it. I'm really disappointed in you. In fact, um, nothing breaks Emery's heart as much as us saying, we're really disappointed in what you've done. There'd be nothing more terrible for me than seeing that um, when I stand before God in judgment. It says here in verse 11 that this is powerful. For these virtues, in this way, he says, there will be richly. I love that word. Just let it sit on your tongue for a second. Richly. Richly provided for you. The entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's the pursuit. That's the desire. That's the beating heart of God. He says, add these things to yourself because I want you to be a person that is ready, willing, able, and welcome in my kingdom and my presence forever and ever. Is that your heart today? As we come to a conclusion, that's the question. Is that your heart today? And if you need to make a change in your life, I encourage you, don't wait. Make it today. If it's to be baptized, if it's to rededicate, if it's just because you need prayer, if it's because things are breaking down and you need somebody to talk to, we'll have an elder down front. I'll be down front. We're happy to pray with you for as long as it takes, to talk with you for as long as it takes. Don't wait to add virtue to your life. Amen? Please stand as we sing a song.